Hello and welcome to episode 96 of the UK True Crime Weekly podcast. I'm Adam. After a bit of time away, I would like to thank all my supporters on Patreon, but especially the new supporters these last three weeks, who are Ian Strachan, Joe Rayson, Ashley McCulloch, Joe Wong, Trisha Inglis, Vicky London, Susanna Park, Adam Stanmore, David Padgett, Jackie Grimes, and from the excellent UK crime podcast, Seeing Red. Thank you all so much for your support, which is really appreciated. I've decided that Patreon members will decide the content of episode 100, so if you haven't joined our group yet, please head over to patreon.com slash UKTrueCrime, where in addition to 19 bonus episodes and other exclusive content, you can help decide what episode 100 is all about. Could be Leeds United's greatest 100 goals. Or then again, maybe not. Today's episode has been researched and written by a friend of the show, Chris Wood. Thanks, Chris, for bringing a really interesting story to our attention. Today we go back to 1994 in the northwest of England, near Manchester. But before we begin, let's set a little bit of context. 1994 saw the official opening of the Channel Tunnel, a 32-mile-long tunnel beneath the English Channel. Now, I'm no engineer, but that's some feat, isn't it? November of this year saw the BBC broadcast the first episode of The Vicar of Dibley. I know that many of you will love that show, but personally, it never did it for me. But maybe I'm just a grumpy old man. (laughs) No, you're right. There's no doubt about it. Grumpy old man it is. I think Only Fools and Horses, The Thick of It or Father Ted are my top comedies. What would yours be, I wonder? And to make us all feel really old... Harry Styles, Jordan Pickford and Tom Daly were amongst those born this year. Eek. I guess at my age, I'm just lucky to be blessed with mature, yet boyish, good looks. In true crime news, Robert Black, who at this time was already serving a life sentence, was found guilty of murdering three young girls. He was sentenced to life imprisonment with a minimum term of 35 years. Incidentally, if you haven't done so yet, head to Amazon to buy The Face of Evil, all about Robert Black by two incredibly knowledgeable authors active in the UK True Crime Facebook group. That's Chris Clark and Robert Giles. It's an excellent book and I strongly recommend it. And this was the year when Myra Hinley was advised by the Home Office that she would never be released from prison. I don't think there were many people arguing against that decision. And in music, the year started off in horrendous fashion as Mr Blobby topped the charts, although mercifully it was just the one week. One group, however, did manage to keep the top spot for quite a bit longer later on in the year. Wet 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 were absolutely everywhere when following the hit movie Four Weddings and a Funeral, the soundtrack Love Is All Around Us ended up at number one for a staggering 15 weeks. And in sport, oh dear, Chris Woods, Do you actually expect me to read this? What are you trying to do to me, Chris? Okay, all right, just for you, here we go. I have to also give a special mention to Come On You Reds, the FA Cup Finals song sang by Manchester United in this year. I may be biased, but I genuinely love that song. Oh dear. As many real football supporters will know, Chris, it's not a patch on Marching On Together from the Mighty League United. So on to today's story. 
Bury is a town in Greater Manchester with a population of around 80,000 people where my mum was born. It lies around 225 miles north of London. 66-year-old Shirley Leach was the proud mother of Gary and Beryl. Indeed, Shirley lived with her son Gary on Holm Avenue in Brandall's home within the town. Recently widowed following the death of her husband Ronald two years earlier, Shirley was the archetypal family woman, the linchpin of the family unit and a doting grandma. Her daughter Beryl had been admitted to a nearby hospital in Bury on New Year's Eve in 1993 following an illness. But being the compassionate and caring mum that she was, Shirley ensured that she visited her daughter as often as possible, usually every day. And as the New Year celebrations were seizing around Greater Manchester, Locals were no doubt in that post-festive lull that we all feel after the new year, when people return back to work and there is soon no time to go to the gym and a bottle of wine has more appeal than that sparkling water in the pub. Yep, you know that time, don't you? For Shirley, however, it was a time of care and trying to ensure that Beryl was managing in hospital. On Thursday the 6th of January 1994, Shirley did what she always did when visiting her daughter. She took a bus from her home to Bury Interchange, from which she transferred onto a connecting bus through to the Fairfield Hospital, arriving at about 6.50pm. Darren Linton, Beryl's son and Shirley's grandson, was already at his mum's bedside and had been there for nearly an hour and a half by the time that Shirley arrived. At around 8.20pm, visiting time had come to a close. Shirley and her grandson enjoyed spending time together and they decided to go for a quick drink at the nearby George and Dragon pub. They didn't stay long, both leaving just before 9pm before boarding the 469 bus into Bury. Darren got off the bus just before it reached the town centre while Shirley remained on board until the bus reached the interchange at approximately 9.10pm. We've heard many times on this podcast that the sheer randomness of life can sometimes be inexplicably cruel and brutal when seemingly innocent events lead to tragedy of the very worst kind. And sadly, this was the situation that was about to befall Shirley Leach. She missed her connecting bus, Just, which was literally leaving the station as she arrived. Her next bus was due in in around 20 minutes at 9.30pm, so she had some time to fill. At 9.15pm, Shirley was seen walking across the interchange towards the station kiosk and this would be the last time that anyone would see her alive again. Shirley had decided to visit the toilet for the interchange and this decision would cost her her life as at some point between 9.15 and 9.30pm, Shirley was brutally attacked. It was 4.15am the following day, Friday the 7th of January when a 26-year-old woman was returning home from a night out. She went to use the ladies' toilets at the bus station and found that the main toilets had been sectioned off by a gate, but one cubicle had been left open for people to use throughout the night. She noticed that the door of the toilet was slightly ajar, and when she pushed the door further open, she was confronted with a scene from her worst nightmares. There lay the naked body of Shirley Leach in the toilet cubicle. She'd been sexually assaulted and strangled. 
It was also apparent that the killer had attempted to mutilate parts of Shirley's body in a further ghastly act. Sometimes there aren't really any words to describe a crime of this nature, and this is one of them. Apprehending such a callous individual, capable of such a murder, became a prime concern for Greater Manchester Police. The murder of this innocent grandma sent shockwaves through the community, both in Bury and the surrounding areas, and detectives were immediately under pressure to make a quick arrest. The murder was all the more puzzling, as at the time Shirley was last seen alive, the interchange was really very, very busy. Detective Superintendent Bill Roberts claimed that several hundred people would have been in or around the area at that time, with trams arriving and leaving every 12 minutes. And this was exacerbated by the large taxi rank nearby and the Buckingham Hall on Haymarket Street emptying at 9.30pm. The investigation initially focused on trying to trace all of the people who had used the Berry bus station that evening. The police took the step of holding press conferences and appealing on the BBC's Crime Watch programme. During one such press conference, Shirley's grandson, Darren, appeared to directly tell his story. Then aged only 19 years old, Darren urged witnesses to come forward. Describing Shirley's murderer as sick, he revealed that he and his grandma had been planning to visit Bolton to hunt for bargains in the New Year sales over the coming days. These tactics from the police certainly yielded positive results in terms of numbers coming forward. Detectives interviewed no fewer than 700 people who were in the area of the interchange on the night of the murder. And interviews with witnesses also offered some interesting lines of inquiry. One lady told the police she saw a man at the interchange holding a blood-stained handkerchief to his face around the time of the murder. Another woman told of a man who'd given her cause for concern at the interchange on the night in question. She had been approached by him at 8.30pm that evening, asking her what day it was and if he could have a cigarette. The man made her feel so uncomfortable that she changed her plans and took a taxi home instead of waiting for the bus in the company of the stranger. Detectives compiled an ethos of this man, who subsequently became known as the Bobble Hat Man. At the murder scene itself, forensic experts too were doing their best to shed any light on who may have been responsible. Following painstaking examinations of the scene, they were able to discover that some of the blood found inside the toilet cubicle belonged to another person other than Shirley. This led detectives to believe that Shirley may have cut her killer as she valiantly struggled to fight him off and fight for her life. The blood would later match the DNA profile of saliva found on Shirley's body, suggesting that this DNA did belong to Shirley's killer. A month after the murder, a mass screening of men in Bury was undertaken, with blood samples and fingerprints being taken from more than 800 men. But despite these efforts, a match was not forthcoming. Following the results of the post-mortem examination, police were even more desperate than ever to apprehend the killer. The examination brought to light the wickedness that was involved in Shirley's death. She had been sexually assaulted and strangled. But perhaps most shockingly of all, however, was the estimation that around half an hour after her death, the killer gruesomely returned to her body and used a broken bottle 
to try and sever off her right breast, which was never found. It's hard to comprehend, isn't it? As well as the sheer nerve of the killer to return to the scene to perform an act of such barbaric cruelty, this also suggests that the murderer fully believed they would not be caught. And sadly, for several years they'll be proved right as the trail went cold. On the fourth anniversary of their mum's murder, Gary and Beryl gave a heartfelt interview where they revealed that they both suffered emotional and psychological stress and trauma after the death of their mother. This trauma merged into physical problems, particularly for Beryl who said, I've now been told I've got cancer of the mouth, which apparently has been caused by all the stress I've been suffering. Gary too laid his feelings bare. From my point of view, he said, it would have been better if my mum had died after an illness. At least I would have had the chance to say goodbye, rather than a policeman coming to my door and telling me that she'd been murdered. Following years of investigative work without snaring Shirley's killer, the case began to slowly filter from the public consciousness. It appeared that, like so many others, Shirley's murderer would evade justice forever and potentially be free to commit similar atrocities. However, on the 18th of February 2006, a full 12 years on from the murder, police received a most welcome and unexpected breakthrough. Following a minor road traffic crash, a motorist was pulled over in Moston, which is just a short drive from Bury, who upon the request of the police produced a positive breath test. He was duly arrested on suspicion of driving whilst under the influence of excess alcohol. The motorist was 38-year-old Ian O'Callaghan. In accordance with normal protocol, he was required to provide a DNA mouth swab and fingerprints to police. And miraculously, upon loading O'Callaghan's DNA onto the National DNA Database, it matched the DNA found at the murder scene over a decade earlier. Despite the passing of 12 years, the case had never been closed and the Cold Case Review Unit staff were actively reinvestigating the murder at the time of O'Callaghan's arrest. At the time when Shirley was killed, police found that O'Callaghan had been working as a moulder at a road cone manufacturer and lived only a 20-minute walk away from the interchange. Furthermore, he bore a really strong resemblance to the description of the bobble hat man who was seen acting suspiciously prior to the murder. O'Callaghan, who was 25 at the time of Shirley's death, denied all involvement in the murder and blamed a string of unfortunate coincidences. A copy of a book called The Chronicle of Murder, which details how a rapist was caught by teeth marks he left in his victim's breast, was later one of the items found at O'Callaghan's home. He still insisted his arrest was a mistake, but detectives didn't believe that for a second, and he was sent to Manchester Crown Court for a four-day trial. On the opening day of the trial, in front of Mr Justice Enrique, the court heard that O'Callaghan had, for the last 12 years, been harbouring a terrible secret. Prosecutor Andrew O'Byrne laid stark the principal features of the case in that Shirley had been attacked, assaulted, and then murdered by O'Callaghan. Of the accused, he said, In February 2006, his past caught up with him. Over 12 long years, 
Shirley's killer remained a mystery, but by a combination of advances in science and a stroke of good luck, the identity of the killer was revealed. By this time, O'Callaghan had married and had even become a father. Indeed, outwardly, it appeared that he lived a respectable and normal life. In 2004, he'd even served in Iraq with the Territorial Army. He no doubt believed that he would evade justice forever, but the prosecution were not about to lose their suspect. O'Byrne said, In the early hours of January the 7th, the naked body of Shirley Leach was found in a toilet cubicle at the bus station. In the cubicle she was attacked, sexually assaulted and murdered. This was a determined attack on a woman of mature years. And the jury, they were subjected to the horrendous detail of the murder. They heard that Shirley's clothing and dentures had been strewn across the cubicle floor. She had been stripped naked either during or after the attack and that she was then sexually assaulted and mutilated after her death. For someone who'd lived such a honest and straightforward life, there was no respect for her at all in her last moments on the earth or after death. In committing his vile acts, O'Callaghan had, however, left clues to his identity with his DNA profile left at the scene. The court were told that DNA samples from the recent road accident matched the DNA found at Shirley's murder, and they both belonged to Eno Callahan. There was a billion to one chance of the killer being someone else, and despite his protestations, these were not great odds for Callahan in the dock. Despite this though, despite this clear evidence, he continually denied that he was ever in the bus station toilets at the interchange, and that he could not remember where he was on the night of the murder. Seemingly, equally as perplexing to O'Callaghan was how his saliva was found on Shirley's body, or why his blood was found on the toilet door. The evidence was clearly stacked against O'Callaghan, and following a four-day trial, the jury were primed and ready to deliver their verdict. On Thursday the 30th of November 2006, the 38-year-old was found guilty of the murder of Shirley Leach. Upon hearing the verdicts, he collapsed in the dock and would subsequently proclaim loudly his innocence as he was led away. His cries could be heard in the courtroom as he was taken to the cells. Whereas in contrast, Shirley's son and family wept quietly as the guilty verdict was delivered. The judge handed down a sentence of life imprisonment and ordered him to serve a minimum of 28 years inside. You attacked Shirley Leach in the most vicious and violent way, he said. There was manifestly some sexual deviance in your conduct. You left her body in the toilet cubicle before returning and amputating the breast. This grotesque mutilation may have been intended as a way of destroying scientific evidence, but it was also suggested that O'Callaghan had been taken a trophy. The judge continued, You had a propensity for violence and sexual misconduct towards women who were strangers to you, as your previous convictions indicate. The victim was vulnerable. She had mental and physical suffering inflicted upon her before her death. Being attacked in those circumstances must have been quite horrific. Indeed, so just think how frightened just how utterly frightened she must have been. 
Let's go back to the previous convictions mentioned by the judge. In 1992, two years before the murder, O'Callaghan punched a woman unconscious in the pub. She was a complete stranger to him. Then in October 1994, he was convicted of indecently exposing himself to a 19-year-old lady and her two younger sisters from the window of his home. Then, and perhaps more chillingly, in 1984, when he was aged just 16, he managed to gain entry into a 46-year-old woman's house in Whitfield Road in Bury. He then crept into her room as she slept before indecently assaulting her. Such an array of crimes would surely have made the police consider why he'd not come across their radar during the hunt for Shirley's killer. Sadly, however, police did not link him to the murder. Former Detective Chief Superintendent Ian Maskery later confirmed O'Callaghan was never questioned at the time. He was never regarded as a suspect. We were aware of his previous convictions as a boy, but had no reason to regard him as any form of suspect. His DNA was not taken at the time of his conviction for indecent assault. That was not how things were done then. Okay, so somebody from Bury, the same small town in Greater Manchester, with that sort of background, and he didn't even cross the police radar? Seriously? But therein apparently lay the stumbling block. DNA advancements had not, in 1994, improved sufficiently, or indeed the taking of DNA at that time was not standard procedure as it has now become. In 1994, the National DNA Database did not exist in its current form, and police could only compare a DNA sample to a known suspect. This case continued to play on the minds of others that were involved. Another detective, Superintendent Bill Roberts, who investigated the murder, said, Shirley's murder was the only homicide I've ever worked on that remained unsolved when I retired in 2000, and it has played in my mind ever since. Every time I've seen a murder or an incident in Bury, I've thought about Shirley and her family. To commit an horrendous offence like this, then not reoffend for more than a decade, is extremely unusual. I honestly believe that Shirley's murderer was dead or had left the country. I hope this conviction has given the family some of the closure that they require to move on with their lives. Although the hunt for an eventual capture of Shirley's killer was delayed, of crucial importance in the case was the use of forensics. Ian Maskery, the senior investigating officer at the time, said, This investigation was extremely difficult, but I was surrounded by an excellent team. I want to pay particular tribute to the senior crime officers and staff from the Northwest Forensic Science Lab, who painstakingly examined the toilet cubicle in cold, damp, miserable conditions. Had they not carried out their work so thoroughly, we would not have had the DNA that eventually traced O'Callaghan all these years later. And what of Darren, the teenager who was with his grandma the night she died? Sadly, it's a tragic story, as the local Berry News reported that Darren Linton, aged 42, still living in Berry, was found dead on the 14th of February 2017, almost 23 years to the day after the death of his late grandma Shirley Leach. On speaking with Darren's father, Mr Bobby Linton, he recalled how traumatised Darren had become after the murder of his grandma. Before this event, Darren was a normal and happy teenager. However, after the event for several years, Darren had to deal with his own grief 
and try and stay strong for his mum Beryl, who was also grief-stricken by the murder of her mum. Darren became very depressed and very withdrawn. He blamed himself for leaving his grandma on the bus, and his mum also became ill with stress-induced mouth cancer, and shortly after the conviction of the murderer of her mum, Beryl also lost her fight against cancer. Darren was devastated and was taking medication to help him deal with his loss. During this time, he was still in regular contact with his dad, but sadly they became more and more distant. His father had not seen or heard from his son for approximately 10 years, so he was very shocked when he received a phone call from his eldest daughter, Karen, who informed him of his son's death. How terribly sad. And also sad and often forgotten about in these cases are those left behind by the perpetrator. As we know, in the 12-year period between the murder and his arrest, O'Callaghan had been married and had a child. His wife Helen told reporters that she was finding her husband's crime extremely difficult to deal with. I've got to spend the rest of my life knowing I married a man who'd committed a murder and remained silent for 12 years, she said. Must be so hard to deal with. Once more we've seen how so many people's lives are affected by one violent incident. Such a horrendously sad and tragic case which robs so many people of a loving and kind woman all through the senseless act of one man. One man who for 12 years was able to evade justice and live his life freely. Thankfully, however, whatever we think of our police forces, their sheer dogginess, or was it luck? Dogginess, let's say to bring Shirley's killer to justice, combined with the enhancements in DNA technology, came together to ensure that Ian O'Callaghan will never, ever be able to wreak the same hurt and anguish onto any other family again. Thank you so much for listening to this week's episode of the UK True Crime Weekly Podcast. Please head to our Facebook group to talk about this case and any other aspects of UK True Crime. There's almost 1,500 people there now and you'll be made very welcome. As I said at the start of the podcast, please head to patreon.com slash UKTrueCrime for 19 full-length bonus episodes, number 20 is coming in October, and for your chance to choose what we talk about on episode 100. Thank you again for listening. Thank you very much to Chris Wood for writing and researching this case. And until we speak again, It's cheerio from me.